Today, Radical Personal Finance Live Q&A. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, a show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My name is Joshua Sheets. I'm your host, and today is a live Q&A show. Uh, works, uh, you call in, talk about anything that you want. We do this every single week when I can arrange the appropriate technology. If you want to talk about your plan to financial freedom in 10 years or less, I don't know a better place for you to do that. If you would like to gain access to one of these Friday Q&A shows to call in and talk about your problems, call in and talk about your plans, talk about your goals, your situation, etc., you can call in and talk about anything that you want. Agree with me, disagree with me. Uh, it's uh, completely live and open. If you would like to get access to one of these shows, go and support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash radicalpersonalfinance, patreon.com slash radicalpersonalfinance. If you find the show there and sign up, that will gain you access to the call-in number and the recording times, etc. We begin with Maggie and Penn. Pennsylvania. Maggie, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Hey, Joshua. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I've gotten great advice from you in the past, and I am hoping to get some great advice from you today. Great. Um, <laughs> my question is about, it's, it's as always a mindset question. So um, I'm curious about your thoughts on uh, how I can pivot my financial strategy. Um, and the background is two and a half years ago, I made a cross country move for a job. And like general adventure, just life adventure growth. Um, After living 52 years in the same place, my situation changed. People launched some responsibilities left for other reasons. And I was able to just take a leap. And it's been great. Um, But my strategy to that point was like stock investing for retirement um, and homeownership. Um, And fast forward to now, I've been renting because I moved during a pandemic um, housing, buying a house here is just not an attractive option for me. I mm-hmm. turns out I, I love renting. Like you were totally right on that. Um, costs are too high anyway. I would have to put too much into it, too much time, money, energy, just not interested in that. So I'm happy with renting. Um, now, so now I'm here two and a half years and I'm good at working on the income side. I'm good at saving. I'm thinking about the rest of it. I have, um, I have a nut. I have, you know, 150K sitting in the bank that I could use for um, a down payment on a house. And I have family back on the East Coast. So some, so, and I, I have a great job here. I'm always, I'm very secure. I don't know if I will still be with my employer in the next year, but I will be with a employer and things are well, like I'm not worried about that. And I also take your advice and try to double my income every so often. So um, that's, I'm trying to double my income now. I also, being out here, I'm writing my first book. I have drafted it. I'm halfway through a revision. Um, and I feel like uh, that's something I'll continue to do is write books. I love that. Um, and I may also start some consulting as well on the side. I do a little bit of that. Um, so the income side of the equation is, is good. Um, but what about the investing side? So I'm, I'm trying to figure out housing. What do I do about housing? Maybe I could do, um, you know, a, maybe I could house hack and keep my rent, my rental here, giving me flexibility if I do change consultancies. 
Um, one of the other consultancies I'm looking at is it doesn't care where I live and they have customers all over the country, including East Coast. Um, the one thing I thought maybe I could buy like a duplex or something back in the, you know, where my family is. And then I could have a kind of like a landing pad when I go back, even though I have people to stay with, it would be nice to have my own landing pad um, and maybe run out the other half, something like that. Um, that's one thought I have. And also just in general, what are your thoughts? What's wrong with stocks? Um, for the, for the, um, for you to I mean, invest stock in. for my, for my, with the, oh, you mean invest in the stock market with the cash capital that I have? Mm-hmm. I oh, I guess I, I, I guess in my head, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm from that generation where we were taught stock balance with real estate, you mm-hmm. know, and I feel like without having a real estate investment, I, I, um, like that's like a safety net kind of kind of thing yeah which might you know which might be bad thinking i mean it might be old thinking i don't know i I wouldn't say it's old thinking i would simply question what is best for you you said you like renting and and at first you said you don't really want to buy a house where you're living now and you like renting uh, and then you go back to real estate and so let me state this very clearly there's nothing wrong with buying a house. All of the ways of buying a house or houses or living units that you said are, are excellent ways to do it. Uh, there's probably any number of good solutions that you could put into place. I think that having a house is indeed a very valuable part of your overall uh, financial plan, and it's an important part of your overall safety net. Uh, We all of us, I think, no matter how well things are going, we recognize that we could do some dumb things and wind up on the street. And so having a house, especially if you have a paid-for house, gives you a significant amount of of personal confidence to know at least I'm not going to be physically on the street. But that buying a house is not always the best move, and it's not always the best move for every person. And so you'll want to think carefully about the way that you approach buying a house and make sure that it is indeed the best move for you and that it fits your, your lifestyle and your vision. So when I talk about so basically the larger question that you're asking is, what should I invest my money in, uh, which is a worthy question with many answers. I'll give you a, a model that I use, uh, but the but the range of investments that is appropriate for you is probably fairly limited and it's probably limited to either investing into yourself or your own business or your own enterprise in some way or it's limited to investing into the stock market probably through just normal mutual funds uh, or it's limited to buying some form of real estate. And that real estate might appear quite ordinary, right? It might be a single family home. It might be a duplex. You might house hack. You might do all of those things. Um, but of course, there are many other things that you could do, but you're probably going to choose from among those options unless you come across something that is that is better and, and more worthy. So let's stick with just those three options. In terms of the most productive investment, the most productive investment that you can usually make is to invest in yourself, to invest in your skills, to invest in your your competencies, to invest in your qualifications, your credentials in some way. That's why we tell people to go to college. That's why we say take a class on marketing or whatever. 
Uh, and a lot of times you need money to invest into something that you really want to do. You're gainfully employed and you're writing a book. Some people, the best thing they could do with their savings is simply live on it while they get their book done. Uh, and maybe you say, okay, I'm going to draw from my savings for the next six months so I can get my book done and get it published. And that's going to be the start of my new career. So if you can see some way to profitably invest into yourself, you should normally do that first because that investment will make a, a bigger difference in the long run. Again, to use the example, that's why we tell young people go to college rather than buy a house first because we know that you can always buy houses and that's a good move, but you want to start by investing into yourself, especially if that investment can reflect an earning power. Now let's move on to, because you've, yeah. you've done that, right? You're, you're doing that. You've done, done that. And you, and you probably I maxed out. Yep. Right. I do. I do regularly myself. I take courses. I, um, I, I do masterminds, uh, with other people that like I generate, I handpick because I'm at that point in my career where I can do some of that. So I agree with you a hundred percent. It is the best thing I can do. And, right. um, and this, what I continue to do, but this is after that. After exactly. That piece. Exactly. For some, if someone is earning $3,000 a month and they've saved $3,000, they've saved $6,000, then what they should invest the money in is not a Roth IRA. They should invest the money into going from $3,000 a month to $6,000 a month through whatever is appropriate. Yeah. But it gets to be very difficult. Once you've done that a few times, it becomes very difficult to actually spend the money back into yourself. And so you you naturally wind up with a surplus. Once you've solved the income issues like you have done, then you say, okay, I've got more money left here. Now, um, there is another component of, of it. And, and again, this is not for you. I just want to make sure it's, it's clear. There is a component in which you can invest into business. You can invest into your own business. It's something that you do. The problem for you is that will probably interfere too much with your career, and it's not something that you're really interested in at the moment. So that's why we naturally move to investment choices that you're not uh, particularly involved with on a daily basis. And that's where the two natural solutions are some kind of ordinary mutual fund portfolio, stock investing, etc., and real estate. Um, you could do other things, right? If you had a real passion for antique watches, then you might go out and, and find the world's best deals on watches and refurbish them and flip them and sell them for lots or, or you know, some other aspect of, of interesting little markets. But assuming that you don't have something like that, that's where you come to housing and to stocks. I think for most people, the answer is to do both. Uh, and the reason is, in the American context, you can borrow a lot of money very safely on houses. And so when you're dealing with borrowed money, you have the potential for a much higher rate of return than if you're doing all the money out of your own pocket. And so if you need a place to live and you can go to the bank and you can borrow, say, $400,000 for a duplex, you put down $100,000, borrow $300,000 for We'll just make a 500, right? You go and you find a $500,000 duplex in a place that you want to live. And if you can borrow 400000 from the bank and put 100000 down out of your pocket and then have your tenants pay your mortgage off for you over a significant period of time because you have one roommate in your apartment and, and you know uh, somebody in the, in the other apartment, then basically you're dealing with, in essence, a form of free money. 
And so that's the big attraction of real estate is that it's relatively easy to borrow against and it provides something that you probably need and want, which is a place to live. Similarly, even if you do this in your own your own house, right? You could, there's nothing. Uh, it's a good thing for many people to buy a place to live. I need a place to live. Uh, and again, in the American context, I can borrow the money for it very easily at at low reason at low fixed rates, which is very safe debt. And so I'll go and I'll buy the place to live. I'll live in it for many years, and then in, in the future, I'll be able to to sell it in a tax advantaged basis. So it is a good thing. The only time it's not a good thing is if it hinders your lifestyle in some significant way, right? This is why we tell young people who should be keep themselves fairly mobile so they can move across the country for better job opportunity. We say, you know, it might be better for you to rent an apartment so you can quickly fold up shop and go for a better job opportunity. Because if you can job hop and go from making 60 here to another state making 100, then to go to a third state making 150, and then six years later you're making 250 on the other side of the country, because you strategically job hopped three or four times, that's going to that's going to pay off much more than if you stayed in your small town where you had limited uh, opportunities, limited employers, and you made you know fifty thousand dollars a profit on your house. Um, but you, so so if owning a house is a restriction on you in some way, then you're better off going to to something else. And, uh, and and avoiding those lifestyle restrictions. The reason I said, you know, what's wrong with stocks is simply that we are fortunate to live in the year 2022. We live with one of the greatest wealth building assets of all time, which means a well-run, very productive, publicly traded securities market that we can access on an exceedingly inexpensive basis. And these markets are wonderful investments. Uh, if I was a, if I woke up and you know, you just you picture yourself, right? I don't know what your number is, but maybe you you woke up and you had ten million dollars in the in investments, and that ten million dollars gives you you know four hundred thousand dollars a year that you can pull off on the four percent rule. The most perfect passive income lifestyle for your investments would be to have all that money in mutual funds. You just pull off your two to four hundred thousand dollars a year of living expenses. You can vagabond around the world, and you've got one of the best, most productive most diversified uh, investment portfolios possible. And so it still would, might, would be, you would still buy an apartment or a house that you wanted to live in and you would pay it off and that would um, eliminate you know, the risk of you being tossed out on your ear because you didn't make a mortgage payment, but it's not necessary. So I would say, look at the house first from a lifestyle perspective and ask yourself, do I want to be in this place for a significant amount of time to make it worth my buying a house? Do I, is the kind of house that's accessible to me based upon my, my numbers? Is it the kind of house that I want to have? Um, and if so, then go ahead and buy the house because it's where you want to live for a long time. But if you don't, if you don't actually want to get involved in real estate investing from the lifestyle perspective, et cetera, there's nothing wrong with putting, outside of cash savings. There's nothing wrong with putting all of your money into uh, your mutual funds. They're, they're phenomenal investments. And they're um, as long as you have proper, again, emergency fund savings, some physical assets, um, et cetera, then there's nothing wrong with that approach as far as I can see. Yeah, that sounds really good. Yeah, I think, and that's, that's, that gives me a um, really good thinking points because it is a place I would like to invest in. Um, and I, I really like the idea of getting into uh, real estate rentals for the long term in case, um, like you said, in case things do go south. I mean, I could do something stupid. The market could, so many things can go wrong and, and things will go wrong. Let's just face it. 
Um, and it's, you know, there's, it takes time to bounce back or, I mean, maybe there's a future in which I don't know what my time frame is that I don't want to bounce back, that I want mm-hmm. to pivot and do something. Maybe I just want to, I, I, the book I'm writing right now is fiction. I have many fiction books in my mind. I also have technical books in my mind that I could write for my career, but I, I wouldn't get the return. Really, that there's no return on that, um, really on, on writing books. <laughs> so it's, right. that, that's, so like, that's another reason why I think real estate is attractive, that it can, it can really be a, a great wealth generating. Just to, It can give you passive income to mm-hmm. cover the day-to-day expenses before um, hitting retirement age and withdrawing and, and can add to all of that. So that's one reason. Um, it really is attractive to me, but I love what you said about, is it the type of house that I would want to live in? And that's, that's like a great question. Um, I don't, I don't know. Um, and that's maybe something I need to investigate. I've got some great resources in that area as far as real estate, um, professionals that I am closely connected with. So maybe I can just take, take some time, uh, when I'm over there to, to look around and see if it is something I want to do, uh, just make it a little bit more concrete. Yeah. By looking at property, I would say seeing that- bu- buying assets is very rarely the wrong thing to do, and real estate buying real estate is very rarely the wrong thing to do. Really, the only things that make buying real estate the wrong thing to do are number one, buying a house that you can't make the payments on. Um, right in, in a time of duress, so going too close to the edge in terms of what you can make the payments on. Number two, buying a house with too short of a time perspective in order to weather market fluctuations, et cetera. Um, Or I guess in theory, buying something that you're just, that is just totally, uh, you get scammed on. But that's hard to do if you go through the normal process. You actually have a house inspect. There's so many people involved. It's, It's hard to get scammed in the normal retail real estate market. So the two big mistakes are those things. So number one, when you buy a house, make sure that you buy it with reasonable assumptions, making sure that, yes, I can afford these payments and uh, I can... no, you know, even if my worst case scenario happens, I can afford it with a with a reasonable, uh, with, with in a reasonable manner. And then number two, buy a house that you're going to be in for that you're that you think you'll be happy with enough for the foreseeable future, so you don't have to sell it within you know six months. Uh, right? And in two thousand, I was a financial advisor in two thousand and eight uh, in the real estate crash in Florida. And the remarkable thing is oh. we had a major real estate crash in 2008, 2009. A lot of people yep. got hurt. But the people yeah. who got hurt were the ones who couldn't make their payments. Within, I think it was six years, five to six years, the prices had completely recovered uh, from the massive crash in 2008, 2009 in the, nine in the, in the South Florida marketplace. And in a decade, it was. It felt like it was just completely gone. And so anybody yeah. who could keep, who, who all the people who were able to hang on to their house, who didn't have to sell because they did a, a stated income loan and farce, you know, fibbed on all the numbers, and you know, one year later they they moved out. Anybody who could stay in their house for a period of time usually made money because the market recovered fairly quickly. And so I think that with those guidelines to say that under under all reasonable expectations, I should be able to to afford this. And then number two, I'm not going to buy something where I have to move out in three months and then because then all the transaction costs eat up all of your potential for, for making it go and you lose all your money in transaction costs. But beyond that, it's very hard to go wrong in real estate, even if there is a significant market change in your local market. 
Yeah, I like I really like that because um, I feel I think that's really good advice. I, I like thinking about a five year time horizon, which is also why I don't want to buy in where I am now in Seattle because the market is so in, inflated and maybe it will keep going up and maybe maybe not. Um, and I don't have a I don't have a strong feeling that I'll be here for that time frame, although I might be. Um, it's just a maybe, and it's not strong enough for me to buy in. But back east, even if I'm not living there, I, I have so many ties back there that I feel like I will always be visiting there. Mm-hmm. Um, another exit is just rent. If I get a place that I can rent, just rent the, rent both units or rent mm-hmm. both places. And I love the idea of having a roommate. I feel like that's so smart because then I then the toilets are getting flushed. You know, like if, if there's a water leak, somebody's noticing it, and I don't have to rely on friends and family to go by, I have a human there. So I right. think that's a great, right. a great idea. So, yeah, I, I, I like the idea, but I think it needs to be more concrete. Otherwise, maybe the stock market just really is a good uh, option for me. And I should think about that too. Um, just recognize be- when you, when you think about the stock market, recognize that you're fortunate to have it. It's a great option. And so when you compare your other opportunities to it, you should always compare it to what's available to you in the stock market. And then notice that I'm getting some other benefit from it. And I think the benefits you said are good. Years ago, I had a a good friend years ago, basically only ever did, has only ever done, made one smart financial decision, which was to buy a duplex and bought a duplex on one side. There's a three bedroom um, unit that he ran it out for income on his side. He's got a two bedroom unit. He traveled a lot, had a roommate in, uh, in the unit with him. So when he travels, there's always somebody there in his house and on the other house. And the rental payment from that is sufficient to meet his, his, uh, his mortgage payment. And so basically he lives free for the risk of signing his name to the loan and the risk of property repairs and things like that along the way. And it's mm-hmm. basically been the only smart financial decision he ever made. And it has paid off significantly for him. So I think it's a great idea as long as it doesn't hinder something else that's important to you. As long as it doesn't hinder your going abroad or your your living on the West Coast because you feel like now I have to go live on the East Coast. So as long as it's not hindering your lifestyle, I say go for it. Okay, sounds really good. Yeah, yeah, and that's a good point too because I'm I may I have a lead on living abroad as well. Um, <laughs> I'm making contact. I don't know where you know early. I don't know where things will lead, but. Um, but that is something I want to definitely do in the future, live in London or Berlin for a while awesome. um, for work, if, if possible. And I'm starting, you know, and I'm making this kind of contact. So, yeah. Yeah, that sounds great. Thank you so much, Joshua. Thanks for the, the mindset, and the thought leadership. I, I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Keep in touch, Maggie. We go now to James in Georgia. James, welcome to the show. Oops, there we go. James in Georgia, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Hey, Joshua. My question is also on house buying. My wife and I have been married for about three months now, and we're looking at buying our first house. And my question is pretty simple, but just wanted to get an expert opinion on it, is based on where our money's invested now, what, I guess, how to, where to pull the money from for the down payment. Okay. Um, So we've got about 100,000 total about half in cash and half in mutual funds. And, you know, we want to target about 40 to 50,000 for the down payment. And so, you know, my, I think the simple answer is, you know, to take about half the cash and keep maybe about 20,000 as an emergency fund. And then 
sell off from the mutual funds however much we need to make up the rest of the down payment. But just wanted to ask you, is there anything that I'm missing there? Any ways to think about it that I don't know or really any uh, any other thoughts you have on that? Have you already identified a specific house that you're planning to buy? We have not. We're still looking for the house. Okay. So have, have you already undergone pre-qualification for a mortgage lender? Yes. All right. So your first thing that you want to do is when you're talking with your mortgage lender, you want to keep your mortgage lender in the loop on all of the stuff that you're doing with your cash. So if your mortgage lender knows, you know, usually they'll want to see that the money in your bank account has been seasoned. They'll want to see that it's been there for a little while. And so if if you're going to be pulling money from a mutual fund and it's going to show up in the bank account, make sure that you're talking with your underwriter that, yes, that'll be fine as long as you can show us the mutual fund statements, et cetera. Uh, because in the end, it probably does. The, the answer to your question is it probably doesn't matter where you pull the cash. We'll talk in a moment about taxes, et cetera, but it probably doesn't matter. You just use the cash. Um, but the key thing is to make sure that you can smooth the process with your mortgage lender and follow your mortgage lender's technical requirements. That's important. Now, the mutual funds that you own, do they have significant amounts of gain such that you will be incurring taxation when you sell them? They will. I've, one of these mutual funds I've had basically was given to me when I was born. Um, and then, you know, same with the other one. So they've been kind of, you know, in my name kind of growing for, you know, 20 odd years. Okay. So for the next thing you do is talk to, look, look at your statements from the mutual fund company and calculate the tax liability that you will owe if you sell those funds. So if they've grown a lot for a long period of time, then there would be a significant tax liability on the sale of those funds. And then, so you need to first understand the number. Let's say you took $50,000 from the mutual funds and you kept all the money in the cash. What would be the cost of selling those funds in terms of the tax liability? Then the next thing you do to make the decision is you, you ask yourself, um, do I still want to own these funds? If they're good quality funds that you've had for a long time, then the answer might be very well, yeah, I still want to own these funds. Ideally, they're good investments. They've done well for me. Um, I and All of the costs are sunk costs, right? There were probably sales charges when they were bought for you. And so all those commissions are paid, et cetera. And so you might say, I'd like to own these funds still. They're good funds. They've been good to me. They've made money and I'm happy owning them. On the other hand, if your answer is the opposite, or you say, uh, no, I actually don't want to own these funds. Well, now this is your excuse to sell them. But you have to understand what the cost of selling them is going to be. You have to understand uh, if I go ahead and sell them, then I'm going to I'm going to have you know tw- I'm going to lose fifteen percent or whatever the number is uh, of the value in taxes. So so ask yourself, do I want to keep them in an ideal world? Do I want to keep them or do I want to get rid of them? And If it's clear that you want to keep them, that'll make your decision relatively easy. If it's clear that you want to get rid of them, that'll make your decision relatively easy. Then the next question is, when is the best time for me to sell these funds? 
uh, and to incur this tax liability. So right now, for example, you might have a high household income, you and your wife making tons of money, uh, you've been saving hard, and so your income is high. But you might look forward and say, hey, four years from now, for whatever reason, we're going to, you know, my wife's income is going to go away because we're having a baby or, or, or I'm going to take a job transfer and our income is going to be lower. So we'll go ahead and sell these in the future when we're in a lower tax bracket. So you need, so you need to understand if something's going to change strategically with those mutual funds. Um, how much is your current household income and what do you expect your mortgage payment to be on the kind of houses that you're looking at right now? Yeah, right now between my wife and I, we make about one hundred and thirty-five thousand per year. Um, but we want to, you know, buy a house where you know, our living expenses, you know, really don't, um, you know, need more than about my income and half my wife's income, you know, for covering that. Uh, so looking at, you know, a little bit of a, you know, not stretching as far as you might be able to. But to answer your question about the monthly payment somewhere between 2000 and 2500 a month. Okay. So that seems very reasonable based upon those numbers. So I don't think you need to worry too much about keeping that much cash on hand. Uh, even if you drained all of your savings and you just identified that if I had a, an emergency, then I would sell my mutual funds or I would borrow against the mutual funds. I don't think it'd be a huge problem for you just to spend the money that you have in in cash savings um, on the house down payment and then replenish it. You should be able to save money after you uh, after you buy the house at that income. And if you're if you're shopping in that range, you should still be able to save plenty of money and quickly replenish your emergency fund. And if you did genuinely have an emergency, you can always sell your mutual funds down the road. So unless you actually want to sell them, from what you're saying, I would just keep them. Why, why pay the tax on them now if you want to keep owning them? Let them continue to grow. Um, take the money from your bank account. Drain your bank accounts. If, um, if you have an emergency, you can put the emergency uh, expenses on a, on a 0% credit card and then pay that off. Or you can withdraw money from the mutual funds later and, uh, and pay it that way. Your big risk with that approach would simply be, what if I have an emergency and simultaneously the value of my mutual funds is declined by 20%? But uh, I can't tell you whether that's likely or not. To me, unless it's it's probably unlikely. So, and 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 especially if you can buttress what you're doing with a you know a credit card or something like that to cover an emergency for six months until you could pay it off, I think I would just spend the money in my bank account on the house. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Remember that again, with the exception of market risk, the 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 maintaining an emergency fund is very important for non-wealthy people. Once you start to build wealth, the need for an emergency fund per se declines significantly your mutual funds can serve very effectively as a component of your overall emergency fund, especially if you can dampen any fluctuations with saying, if I had an emergency, I would use a credit card and I would you know, get a 0% credit card uh, 
for 12 months and I would use that to pay for the emergency. And then if I couldn't pay it off within 12 months, then I would drain for the, for the, the mutual funds. So if you have significant tax liability and if you want to keep owning them, I don't see why you should sell good investments just to make a house down payment when you can pretty quickly save up again your $20,000 emergency fund uh, after you buy the house. Uh, and the thing I like about that also is it'll keep your own budget, uh, which I think will be great because as you look at houses, it's so tempting to stretch your budget. And if you just stick to the the cash that you have in your bank account, that's a good way of keeping yourself on budget. That's another good way to think about it, Joshua. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for calling in, James. We move on right. to Dan. Dan, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Dan, you're up. Dan going once. All right, move on. Dan, I'll come back to you in a minute. We'll go on to Mike in Washington. Mike, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Hey, Joshua. Can you hear me well? Sounds great. Perfect. Uh, thank you, Joshua. Uh, I had a question to you about the financial planning for children. Mm -hmm. So uh, myself and my wife, we're very new to the United States. We just moved earlier this year. Welcome. And we expect, thank you. And we expect our first baby very soon. And uh, I've started to understand there are probably a few things I need to start thinking about, financially speaking, as my baby will be born. I understand, actually, your pre previous question from James, he mentioned he was given mutual fund in his name when he was born. Mm -hmm. I've heard about other things like maybe opening bank account for my kid or, I don't know, any steps like that. Again, they're quite different in the U.S. Uh, versus Europe. And I wanted to ask your uh, perspective, what are the steps I need to think about right now? Or actually, it's too early and it's better to do when, I don't know, my kid will be five years old or even later. Yeah. Which country in Europe did you move from? Uh, we went from London. And how did you get into the United States? Um, so um, we're here for work. And at the moment, we plan to stay in the United States for foreseeable future. But yeah, it's very hard to predict for how long we would live here for multiple dozens of, of years. Or we may decide to two years from now to move back. And mm -hmm. obviously, our kid will travel with, with, with us. Mm -hmm. Of course. So the first question is, do you want your child to be an American citizen by being born in the United States? Yes. Okay. So if you clearly want that, then then that's your that's your first financial question. Um, the vast majority of times that's seen as an advantage. There are a few times in which it's seen as a disadvantage. So you've answered it quickly, clearly, that's done. Second yep. thing is, as an American citizen, so do you maintain your financial life in the United Kingdom or do you, have you moved it all to the United States? Yeah, predominantly move it here to okay. the United States. So that's the other kind of complication is what will be complicated for your child by being an American citizen is that his or her life will be easy, most easily handled in the United States because as an American citizen, he or she will forever be a an American taxpayer. He or she will forever mm -hmm. have... Um, uh, limitations and reporting requirements on bank accounts held abroad, et cetera. And so um, thinking about that and setting that stuff up in the United States intentionally uh, will keep the the accounting simpler uh, for down the road. And it's something to be aware of if you do leave in the future. Uh, and, and that's why it's such a big deal. Uh, to think about, do I want my child's my child to be an American citizen, born on American soil? 
Do I want his or her passport, even his or her British passport, to say born in the United States, uh, et cetera, because it, that, that financial life follows you uh, for a very long time. Uh, there's not, so, so after that, there's not really anything that needs to be done or should be done or has to be done for a child's finances. All of the things that you can do for a child are basically mental games for you as a parent. And some people find those mental games to be motivating. But there's no fundamentally superior thing that you can do for a child. In general, and I'll expand and give examples in a moment, but because this is true, um, I advise you to focus first and foremost on you doing the right things financially and on you getting rich because by you uh, or getting richer right if you already are by you being wealthy and increasing your wealth you will be able to offer to your child more and more of the things that will make a big difference in his life so if we compare options and let's say that you can either give your child a great education or you can put aside $1,000 in a mutual fund, the education will be incomparably better uh, and incomparably more valuable. So all of the normal things that parents do for their children, these are the things that pay off. Uh, I'll use another example, right? The, the social class that your child is a part of. Uh, if you live in a, let's say that you have, you, you have a choice, right? I've got, I don't know, $15,000 and I can either put this $15,000 into a college savings account for my child, or I can put this $15,000 with my other money and I can move our family into a posher neighborhood with, uh, with a higher class of neighbors where my child will naturally go to the high class school where all of the local wealthy elite people send their children. Right? The access to the higher social class, I think, will pay off much, much more than any kind of investment into a college fund or something like that. So if you are looking at something and if you have to sacrifice on any of those things in order to set aside money specifically for your child, I think that's uh, I think it's generally better to make sure that you're in a better social class, make sure that your child is better provided for, you know, developmentally in terms of education, uh, resources, hobbies, good neighbors, etc. So I don't look at that. And, and, and when I've gone through this, I've developed my own list of things that are important to me for me to do for my own children. And I almost never come out the other side with any kind of specific investment for the child. Although there are a few things you can do and I'll, 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 go, I'll go over them. But let me give an example, right? My wife is a stay-at-home mother. I am convinced that having a full-time stay-at-home mom um, will make a much, much bigger difference in my children's formation of their character, their intelligence, their you know everything about it by having a full-time mother than uh, than anything I could buy for them. And so that's a major cost, of course, to forego a dual-income household. But I will I see it as a massive investment into our children. We choose to homeschool. Uh, and I look at that as, again, I can provide with homeschooling, I can provide what a, a an elite private school paying $100,000 a year in tuition can't provide. I can do that pretty easily in homeschooling. But it comes with a significant investment into uh, 
um, books, materials, resources, etc., as well as diverting my wife's and my time and attention to help with the appropriate tutoring. Uh, I spend money on tutors and teachers and people who come to the house and, and teach. I spend money on classes. I, we do a good amount of world schooling. And so I spend money to travel around the world and show my children interesting things. And I do that because as I look at it, I want to invest into the child's human value, human resources, because money for somebody who is Money is relatively easy to make in the modern era for somebody who is disciplined, who has good character, who is employable, who has good skills, who has good social skills, etc. Money is easy to, to, to have. But if I had all the money in the world and I didn't invest into my child's education, into character, etc., then no matter how big the fortune, very quickly that fortune can be squandered. And so if I ever have to choose between one or the other, setting aside money for my child is probably the least impactful, least important thing that I can do as compared to all these other things. And so this is one of the reasons why I, of course, have such a deep passion for educational topics, et cetera. But if you look at it, to me, the payoff is, is 50 times greater than any kind of investment can return. Uh, when I talk about college funding, I like to give this example, right? The data is crystal, uh, yeah, I think crystal clear is not an excess. The data seems very evident, very clear uh, of what, what, what study I can find, what academic evidence I can find for an evidence-based evidence approach to, to child education. But simple things like the, the, the amount that you read aloud to your child at an early age will make a massive difference in all academic performance. This is again why I get such a, why I'm so passionate about things like having a stay-at-home mom, homeschooling, etc. Because if my children are read to, read aloud for two to four hours a day, then um, I know that basically all academics for the rest of their life will be easy. But if I neglect that, if I ignore that, right, I stick them in a daycare somewhere where they watch cartoons, then then I might be spending thousands and thousands of dollars on special tutors when they're at high school age to try to squeak through an SAT and I can't get an academic scholarship for college and, and or they can't, or in your system, they can't pass their A-levels. And, and so then everything is destroyed from a college perspective as well. And I wind up paying huge checks out of pocket to try to finish off a college education. The return on investment for all of those things is absolutely huge compared to setting aside money for college funds, et cetera. Now, let's assume that your income and your wealth allows you to do all of the things that you can imagine being appropriate and helpful for your child. Um, you've surrounded, put your child in the best um, environment. You've chosen the best neighborhood. You've built yourself. You've, you've integrated yourself into the best local social class where your child has high class neighbors and friends and peers that are going to be a positive influence, et cetera. And you still have money. Uh, that's available for your child. Well, now we just basically get into either mental tricks that are helpful for motivating you to make more, or we get into things that are simply intelligent tax planning because why not? We can do it. So let's talk about mental tricks. People who have a specific goal of something they want to do for their child will often work extra in order to accomplish it. And that extra work can add to your family wealth because it's extra work. So, you know, for years I've, I've thought about and talked about and, and had a target of, okay, I want to have, I want to give each of my children a house. 
And so this can be a clarifying concept for someone. Let's assume that you're a kind of a normal middle class, upper middle class wage earning earning person. You say, I'm going to give each of my children a house. And so for every child now, I need to come up with a down payment or the cash to to buy a house. And this is so-and-so's house. And this is the house that's going to pay for college. Um, If you, you can do that for yourself and you can do it for your child. But we often, as parents, find our children to be more motivating. So whereas if it were just for yourself, you might have said, well, let's just go blow the money and spend it on silly, frivolous things because I know I could buy a house every year, a rental house every year, but I'm not going to do it. But all of a sudden, now I got a child. I'm going to buy the rental house this year. This is the rental house that is going to be paid off by the time my child is in college. The rents from this house are going to pay for, the, for, for his or her college tuition. And so I'm, you know, I'm done. And so it motivates people to do extra activities actions or say something like opening a a Roth IRA for your child. And you say, I'm going to fund this Roth IRA every year. And it's going to motivate me to minimize my other, my overall spending in order to, uh, to, to fund that account. And so as long as it's, as long as, as the other stuff is being attended to, right, the right schools, the right education, um, the right camps or the right, you know, books and resources and toys and et cetera, as long as all that stuff's being attended to, then yeah, working extra, using it as a mental trick, a motivating mental trick is a powerful thing. And then in terms of just intelligent um, tax savings, et cetera, or intelligent planning, if you're going to enroll your child in, say, an expensive private university, and you know that that's going to have a $300,000 tuition bill down the road, and if you've got the money sitting in a bank account, and it's and you could put it into, in the American system, into a 529 account, and you could just make a lump sum payment of $500,000, and you calculate that in 18 years, this is going to be available for tuition, and that's going to be done, yeah, that's a good thing to do. It's absolutely a, a great... It's a good it's a perfect situation for using a 529 account or if you can arrange for your child to have to generate some amount of earned income um, so that you can uh, so that you can uh, so that you can fund a Roth IRA, uh, you can match the child's earned income with whatever the child's able to generate, and you can fund a Roth IRA. That's a great thing to do be- because you're you're generating the time value of money. You're really you're really building setting aside money early that's available for the for your children. But again, this is basically all just mental tricks because it would be just as productive for you to put the money into your investment accounts 10 years ago, and now you would have 10 years plus 18 years, and you can make a bigger gift to your child as well. So there's no one thing that you need to do or that has a magic um, magic uh, kind of solution for your child's planning. Any amount of money that gets set aside and any money that can grow it's better if it happens for a, you want your money to grow for the longest time possible at the highest rate available to you. And you want it to grow in the most tax effective tax deferred manner. My answer to all of those things is the best investments you can make are going to be into education. And you want to make those as early as possible. And those are the things that are not taxed. They're, they're, they, they fit everything better. And they will result in your child being positioned for far more success than if you only set aside money. So first attend to all of that stuff. And if it requires you to move, um, to, to move into a better house, to get better neighbors of a higher social class or a better access to a better school or whatever it is, those things all need to be handled first. But then after that's done, yeah, you can go and you can buy a house for your child. You can fund a Roth IRA for your child if he has earned income. You can open a 529 account, etc. There's no um, 
other than other than that, there's there really not anything else that you want to do. Stay away in the American system. You hear people have there's UT, what are called UTMA accounts or UGMA accounts. It stands for Uniform Transfer to Minor Acts or Uniform Gift to Minor Acts. Stay away from those. Um, if you have substantial wealth, you can always set it aside and make your child a beneficiary on a trust. That can be useful, but it's not necessary and none of that stuff ha- needs to happen when your child is very young. Final comment is I'm a big fan of buying um, uh, small life insurance, well, appropriately sized life insurance policies, which for most people means smallish life insurance policies for children when they're very young. Uh, and so for all my children, right when they're about, I think it's 15 days old or a month old, basically when they've all been about a month or so old, I buy them a, a permanent life insurance policy, but that's not, that's, that's not going to grow to be very worth very much money. That's just something I do, um, so that they have some insurance and by doing it really young, you can basically avoid all medical underwriting and you can, you can set aside and have, have some insurance for them. I do that because I value the insurance and those policies are not very productive when it comes to growing uh, from, from investment value. All the other stuff is much better from an investment value perspective. So that's my overall answer. That's awesome. Thanks a lot, Joshua. Just one quick question on the list you just finished on the life insurance. You 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 saying you actually doing that when your kids are very uh, young? Are there any substantial benefits to do it now versus two years from now, five years from now? Well, you, the child has to be born first. Uh, so, is your child born? Not yet. Yeah. So the child has to be born. You can't buy a policy on the, until the child's born, and then the insurance companies will generally all have different rules. I think this has been just getting, I'm getting long in the tooth now. I can't even remember. I think um, it's, it's something, usually something like two weeks, might be a week, two weeks. But basically, the benefit to doing it when a child is, say, a month old is that unless there's been something that has, you have a very low chance of anything physical emerging or expressing itself. Unless the child has some deformity or some handicap or illness that is evident, that is obvious from birth, as long as the child, the baby passes all of his initial infant scores and everything is good and height is good, weight is good, and all of the, the initial kind of infant scores are good, then you can get a, uh, a preferred, uh, you know, a preferred or premier, uh, depending on what the company calls it, the highest rated um, life insurance policy with no medical underwriting, et cetera. And there's been no time for anything to develop or emerge uh, of, an, of any medically questionable thing. And so uh, I love doing that. And I do it because the kinds of policies I own, they have huge additional purchase benefits on them. Uh, and they all have waivers of premium on them, et cetera, that apply for the, so if the child were ever disabled, it protects the child's insurance. Uh, and it doesn't cost that much, right? Again, those policies for a zero, when you get them at zero years old, you're just getting the cleanest, simplest uh, approach across the board that gets you some life insurance for your child. Uh, and that's, that's what I do. Uh, I'm a little biased because obviously I'm a former insurance agent, but I saw the power of it. And it's something that even though I don't make commissions on insurance, because I'm not an insurance agent anymore, I continue to buy for my children. Got it. Okay. Thank you very much, Joshua. Really appreciate your advice. My pleasure. All right. We move on. Let's try James in California. James, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Well, how are you, Joshua? Very well, sir. So I was calling in, probably kind of commentary on that show you did few weeks ago on the coming famine mm-hmm. in America, kind of threw out responses to that. I mean, I'm, I'm a farmer. I have a food business that we're integrated from farming to 
retail sales. Mm-hmm. And when it, we have, it seems like we have an abundance of food and mm-hmm. have a lot of issues with the uh, with pricing. It's been extremely difficult about six, seven years at this point. And so the temptation on the one hand to basically shut things down because rates of return and whatnot, not that we have to, we're not going broke or anything, but it's not great. Maybe we're productive doing something else. On the other hand, it's like, well, I don't really want to shut food production down if there's a big famine coming. So it's just kind of your thoughts or if there's any additional thoughts you had to, on that subject since that show or other things that have come up since then. So, to, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm probably not, I mean, I'm not the best person to ask about this uh, because it's not something that I follow very closely. I think one of the, so you would be the person that I would come to and ask, but uh, first, the big unknown has simply, especially when I released that show, which going on a month and a half, two months ago, something like that, um, the big unknown was what were going to be the, uh, the 2022 crop reports for... Uh, for this season uh, on a global basis. My impression has been that the crop reports in the United States have been really good. Do you th- is that right? Is that, do, you, do you think I'm right on that? Yeah, I think you have. I'm, I'm in California, mostly in specialty nuts, uh, vegetable crops, and then tree nuts, so I know well, and they've had a good crop. The reports I've had from the cereal grains is they have had a decent crop. There's a big logistics issues, which probably will get resolved without spoilage in the Mississippi basin because the, yeah, the river's low, but um, beyond that, I've not heard of any major issues. Right. So I think that that is great news, um, especially for an American marketplace. Uh, At least if we consider the abundance of food to be great news, it's not great news if you want your prices to go up so you can (laughs) make more money, unfortunately, but it is great news for the abundance of, of food. Uh, because yeah. if the U.S. crop reports are really good, then that, again, leads to the United States being really well positioned. Um, on a global basis, uh, I, again, I'm, I don't pay, I'm not super tuned in. I've heard that about the American markets. I don't know what the global crop reports are are looking like as far as what they're starting to look like as they come in. And I haven't looked into it over the last couple of weeks. But my, I, and I tried to say this in the show, I think that when we talked about the the possibility or probability of global famine, I uh, I believe that that is going to be felt most acutely on a global basis. And while it can affect the United States, I don't expect the worst of conditions to be in the United States, simply because the United States is such a massive producer and exporter of food around the world. But around the world... We continue, I mean, the, the, the use of the F word is absolutely appropriate. Uh, I, don't, I don't pay attention to, I don't track this stuff all over the world on a daily basis, but enough of the stories make their way across my desk, even from personal contacts, that, that people are experiencing famine right now. Um, I have uh, a good amount of contact with, uh, with some of the crisis zones around the world, right? There continues to be famine in Venezuela for poor people. There's a massive, massive refugee crisis of refugees flowing out of Venezuela. Most of them heading to the United States. Um, it's 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 dire there. Um, I continue yeah. to have contact with um, 
with people through some Christian mission work in, in Kenya, um, and there are people that are starving, and it's bad. Uh, but again, it's distributed uh, in places where most Americans don't see. And so it's already happening. And so, and if I look at the impact of the Russia-Ukraine war, the, the complete destruction of, of uh, their exports uh, and their crops and how that is harming all of the, all of the places that, that have bought their wheat uh, over the many years, the use of famine is not hyperbole, nor is it wrong in this context. But I I'm, yeah. I'm not as worried. I, I was never as worried about famine in the American context as I was on a globe as I was on a global basis. And today, especially with the good crop reports, I'm not as worried as I was um, a few weeks ago, especially from an American context. So it's a moving market. I, I, I do not have any specialized insight, though, that I could say what would be appropriate for your agricultural and agriculture and food related business, um, because my knowledge is very general. Okay. Well, thanks for the response. Yeah, that's, uh, it, it certainly is a concern, especially the areas that were very dependent on the Russian Ukrainian uh, wheat supply, because it's but largely because of logistics issues. Yeah. There's abundance of food, say here, but it's probably it's mostly specialty crops and by the time they're shipped to these areas in famine the people there can't afford to buy them even if they're in some cases not being harvested here because they're worth less than the cost of harvesting right 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 Um, i think there'll be big changes in the years to come with all of that but as far as the trend that i see is probable is that the united states is going to to, to serve its own market much, much more uh, effectively. Uh, the United States produces all the specialty crops and all of the main cereal crops in abundance. And if you bring in Canada into the picture, then you have everything available. And so North America has the best, not only does it have the best geography, the best weather, the best you know technology, et cetera, but it just has the best production on a global basis. And so I think that North America will be largely insulated from from those things on a global basis. But I, the reason I I wanted to, the reason I did the show on famine and talked about it is I believe in the modern era we have such a, a tremendous amount of hubris of basically saying oh it can't happen here it can't happen to us and so it's simply wise to recognize that since time immemorial crop failures have led to massive cataclysmic change. Uh, I go over and, and I, and one of the things I love about homeschooling is I get to relearn all of my history and I go through these old books with my children and we listen to them and you hear again and again and again, Hey, here was the Nile river, but for two years, the Nile river didn't flood. And guess what? That civilization disappeared. And so it leads to massive uncertainty, et cetera. And while I'm exceedingly grateful for how good we've gotten at producing massive amounts of, 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 uh, food, this tech, our ability to do that is based upon petroleum-based fertilizers and high technology. And as we talked about in that in that show, the the uh, uh, the, the the increase in, in fertilizer prices, etc., can have a very quick imp- effect, and it can it can cause a market to collapse. I personally, and, and even you know, as I did that show with Stephen, I think it was obvious for anyone who made it to the end that. I personally resist at this point many of the worst case scenarios because I think that human ingenuity 
can often find a way. I think it's so remarkable. If we look at the uh, gas shortage across Europe, just this last week, you know, three or four weeks ago, we're looking at people saying, um, my price for for heating is going to be, you know, $10,000 a month equivalent, it's unaffordable. But then this last week, all of a sudden, there are stories coming out that will the price of natural gas in Europe be zero because you have too many tankers piling up because there's nowhere to put the gas from all the gases coming in all around the world. And so, you know, um, uh, Nassim Taleb has a saying that he says that he says, I've never seen a shortage not followed by a glut. And so if you think, if we think about that, it, it reflects significantly on human nature. Uh, if you observe this in, in Florida and hurricane country where there's a hurricane that's coming and all of a sudden there's a giant shortage. You can't find bottled water and you can't find bread, et cetera. And then two days later there's a glut and it's everywhere. So the, the, the appropriate way to handle this, I think for individuals in a business, you, you, you project, uh, you, what you think the market is going to do. And then you head your downside by buying insurance against what, if you're wrong, but for an individual, I think that protect, protection generally involves just a, an appropriate food storage program for the average person so that if you get a temporary disruption due to significant levels of famine you have enough resources while for you to survive while you wait for the market to fill in around the edges yeah sounds a uh, degree with that it's a good quote by Nassim Taleb also I don't remember yeah. that one yes it's a good point and uh yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah, I wish I had better insight for you, but uh, I've been encouraged by the news, good news of the of the good crop report. Uh, deeply encouraged by that, and I just hope it continues. And I hope that uh, I hope that the famine prediction turns out to be completely wrong. It would, it would I'd be thrilled to hear, thrilled for that to be the case. So we will see. All right, I do too. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, James. Thank you so much. We move on to our final caller of the day, Dan in Alberta. Dan, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Hello, Joshua. Uh, my question today is how do we build a portfolio of ethical, diverse, and sustainable farms? Uh, so some definitions. Ethical, I want it to be equitable for the places I'm, I'm farming in. I don't want to be uh, like a Canadian mining company that just extracts all the gold out of the country and just mm-hmm. pays a couple minimum wage jobs and the welfare and that sort of stuff. Uh, sustainable, I want it to be financially sustainable, so it would be a business, but but yeah, like I said, I want it to be ethical and then environmentally sustainable and uh, diverse. I want it to be in diverse climate zones, diverse geopolitical zones, and diverse crops. Um, and then, yeah, I can go into a bit about myself. Um, Net worth right now is about 200,000 uh, American. Um, I do have a plot of land in Canada. Uh, it's definitely on the cold side of the diversity of climate. Um, and my income varies from about 30,000 to 70,000, depending on work seasonally, so depending on how much overtime I get and how much I work. And then my expenses right now are between twelve and eighteen thousand a year, American uh, U.S. dollars. Um, I I currently don't pay rent anywhere. Kind of travel, live at uh, 
my my seasonal job and then travel and live in a van and that sort of stuff. Uh, so yeah, how do I how do I build a portfolio of ethical, diverse, and sustainable farms? I love the question. Uh, it's a, a very inspiring question, and um, and I'll I'll give you my answer, uh, but. I would say that my answer will not be nearly as important as somebody who has done it. So I'm going to give you my answer, and I'm good at systems thinking, and I think I'll give you some useful points. But um, the first way that you can learn how to do that is to go and find somebody who has done it. So you have to find a mentor or a hero or somebody out there who has done something like what you are uh, thinking about doing, and then you need to consume every bit of information you can find related to how they did it. And then think about how you would translate that into your own context. Now, I think the obvious uh, first place to start would be Joel Salatin. Um, he's the biggest name that I know of in that space who has succeeded in developing a portfolio of ethical, diverse, sustainable farms, right? He would, his, his farming operations would tick the box in all of those, uh, on all of those factors. And so the good thing is, uh, the good thing is, uh, he's prolific with his writing, with his speaking, uh, with his interviews, et cetera. And so I would imagine you've probably already done it, but the first step would be go and order every single book that he's written, um, go to YouTube and make a playlist of every single talk you can find of his that's been recorded, videoed, find every podcast you can find and, and spend, you know, two or 300 hours studying Joel Salatin. Along the way, then you'll start to study the bibliography that he has, and you'll start to find who inspired him, right? I think, for example, years ago, I subscribed to a, 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 a sustainable regenerative agriculture publication called Acres USA. I don't know if they're still published. This was almost ten years, five to 10 years ago that I used to subscribe to them. But um, go and look for publications like that who are uh, publications or organizations of people who are committed to um, committed to uh, sustainable farming regenerative agriculture I think is the appropriate uh, word uh, to, word that's used to as a good label and then what you do again is you go through their uh, their list of contributors uh, buy you know a couple years worth of back issues if if you can go through their website and your job is to mine the names and so you need to find the names of all of these people and then you search to see what each of the contributors to the publications has available for you so if uh, you know uh, I'll, I'll do some names. I'm not current on this space anymore. I've, I haven't had a deep interest in this for a number of years. And so this is going back, but, it, but you know, it, it's, it's Joel Salatin. It's Greg Judy. It's who's the South African guy. Amazing guy. Alan, um, Savory, uh, not South Africa. I think he's in Zimbabwe. Anyways, Alan Savory or, or whomever else. And the other, you know, 30 names of people, uh, 
you know, a guy like Paul Wheaton has spent years working on this stuff and he's got a forum. So you go onto the, uh, what is it? Permies.com, I think is Paul Wheaton's forum. And you go and he's, he lives in Montana, right? So go visit him, uh, call him up, tell him what you're doing, go, go visit him. And so you have to begin with education and you have to find out what other people have done that has worked and what other people has done that hasn't worked. And so that's your market research project. And if you go and you read, you know, 100, 200 books written by people, you listen to a thousand or so hours of, of the uh, podcasts that are produced, you listen to a thousand or so hours of their YouTube commentary, you read their articles, etc. And then if you go and visit about, say, you know, a dozen of these guys who are doing something like what you've done, that is where your, your most important information is going to come from. Uh, and that's, that's step one. And so you'll invest, you'll invest the time into finding the information. And basically you have to create for yourself a master's degree program of people who are involved in ethical, diverse, sustainable farming. Uh, and, and it begins with finding the public, the, the, it begins with using the, the information that has been published. And by published, I, I include print, but I also include more modern, uh, uh, media, audio, and video. And then you use the published information to make contacts with the people who are doing it. And you find out what they're doing that is, is, has gone well for you. And you make contact with them. Uh, and those people, what you'll find is if you, if you analyze the marketplace, there will be say six to 10, uh, and I'm making that number up, but but the, but you'll gain access if you if you can if you consume the work of a few dozen people. All right, there's dozens of podcasts on this subject. There's there's online forums that you can access, and you consume the work. You'll find you know five or ten people who are super connectors in that business. Right, Justin Rhodes uh, is a super connector in that business because of his media platform. Uh, and so if you meet Justin Rhodes and you describe your question or your problem or what you're facing to him, he'll know the specific person to send you to because he's a super connector. Joel Salatin, super connector. Paul Wheaton, super connector because they usually it relates to something relating to media. So that's where you begin is by consuming their information. And then as you're consuming it, you have to solve the big problems of the business. And so I would say that uh, when you, when you uh, described your question to me, I jotted down three things. So the question is, how do I build a portfolio of ethical, diversible, sustainable farms? So that's a very well-phrased question. The first thing about it is it's big. Saying, how do I develop a portfolio puts your head in a very different space than how do I buy a farm or how do I become a farmer? So the first thing you're going to have to solve is you're going to have to solve access to capital. Um, how do I build a portfolio of farms? And you're going to have to think about and make a list of all of the different ways that you personally can access capital. So can you do this on rented land or does it have to be owned land? There are many people who have pioneered farming operations and shown how you can actually do much better on rented land or on borrowed land than you can on owned land. But there's also unique things about the model that only works in some, in some places. Uh, I had a client of mine uh, 
I spent a lot of time talking with it. And he was a student, right? Greg Judy, I think is the name. He's a cattle farmer or cattle, a cattle grower out of Missouri, I think. And one of the things that's remarkable about him was he started when he was totally broke and bankrupt. He'd gone, he'd, he'd been, he'd gotten divorced, lost all his money, didn't have much to start with. And due to circumstances, he was forced to start with basically nothing. And so he started doing everything on rented land and he used his cattle operations and he sold the fact that his cattle were going to improve the quality of the land for the landowner as a way to get him access to grazing land on the cheap. And so he pioneered this whole model, doing it all with rented, borrowed land and him making his money on on managing the herd. And so you can find models that are inspiring of people who do everything on rented land. If you could build a model that doesn't require you to purchase land and you could figure out a way to do that within an Alberta context or whatever market you're going to live and work in, then that will that will mean that you need millions of dollars less to do what you're what you want to do than otherwise. If you have to buy the land, then you have to figure out how am I going to gain access to this capital? And that's obviously a classically difficult thing. How do I come up with millions of dollars? But in studying it and talking to people, you'll you'll have to figure out how do I have access to capital? The second thing that you'll have to face is if you're going to have a portfolio of farms, you're not going to be able to do the work yourself. Uh, And so from day one, you're going to need to figure out a system that operates without you being involved in it. And so you're going to have to figure out who do we actually need to do the work? Uh, How many people do we need? Can we get rid of the people? Can we make the cows do the work? Or can we make the automated GPS-driven tractors do the work? Um, I don't know, but you're going to have to, or do we need the people? And if we need the people, what kind of model would we need to offer to the people to be able to attract them? How would we manage them? How would we do it, et cetera? But you're going to have to figure out the model for people. And that's, again, a, a famously difficult thing related to farming because you, but it's not insurmountable. I just think it's, it's difficult. And you'll want to think about that. And then you'll want to think about what your food systems are uh, in terms of what you're actually producing. Uh, because I think in this space, uh, especially with regard to the sustainable aspect of what you said and the diversity, right, diversity of, of, of crops, et cetera, if you're trying to build a diverse farming operation, you have to, that diversity is often going to, sac- you're going to have to often sacrifice efficiency for diversity, right? It might be very cold where you are, but you'll want to, years ago, I, I interviewed actually Ben Falk, who was a big inspiration for me, um, F-A-L-K, uh, and I, he was, I interviewed him on, on Radical Personal Finance. And one of the things that I loved about Ben and his work in the Northeast of the United States was that he modeled what I think of as appropriate planning. So he had his his homestead that he that he worked on, but he had put into that he planted um, foods crops for uh, climate zones, two climate zones higher and two climate zones lower in terms of temperature, uh, or at least one. Maybe two might be an exaggeration. Maybe at least one. The point being that we can't predict what the local weather patterns are going to be. And so we don't know whether the local weather is going to get warmer or whether it's going to get colder. And so he planted crops that would flourish if the weather got warmer or if the weather got colder. That way, if there was, if the climate changed significantly, then his entire operation wouldn't fall apart. So I love that. You know, the planner in me loves that forethought, that, that thinking, that ability to adapt um, to it. And 
the idea between behind that is uh, uh, is I think what you're looking for. The problem is when you do that, you're going to be sacrificing efficiency. You're going to be dedicating land to crops that aren't going to produce unless the climate warms. Uh, and then they'll produce, and you're ahead of things, but they're not going to uh, produce if they it, – it's not going to work, and it's going to sacrifice efficiency. So you have to make sure that you're in a, in a model where that's actually a good thing. Um, another example um, that I found with regard to diversity would say you've got to figure out what kind of diverse resources would work for uh, for generating in revenue on an ongoing basis. Uh, years ago, and again, I'm many years out of date, so I don't know who the leader is in this space anymore. But years ago, I read uh, Mark Shepard's book on uh, forest, like forest permaculture, or something like that. I can't remember the name of it now. But um, Mark Shepard was a guy who had a deep interest in sustainable agriculture, etc. And he looked at it and he said, you know, all these guys piddling around in their garden with their little, you know, uh, tenth of an acre food forest, like this is a joke. You can't feed the masses with with a couple of fruit trees in your front yard that you call permaculture. And so he said, you ha- we have to have calorie crops and we have to have an appropriate, we have to be able to produce food that's mass calorie crop and it has to be done on a broad scale. And so he bought a farm and he focused on tree crops and, uh, you know, oaks and walnuts and hickories and all the tree crops. But in order to make it work, because you're going to plant thousands and thousands of trees, you have to make sure that you have money. And so he row cropped um, the tree crops that are going to be the ultimate, like perfectly sustainable system of forest agriculture producing calorie crops with the interplanting annuals that are going to be harvested that are going to give us give us um, uh, money now that we can keep the farm alive. And so I think thinking about it in terms of a of a uh, of a uh, multiple year factor is going to be important as well. What's the system and the, what's the overall system that you think fulfills this, this structure of, of ethical, diverse, sustainable, et cetera. So I've reached the end of my knowledge and of my examples. Again, my examples are old. I was really into this five to 10 years ago. I haven't been into it at all for the last five to 10 years. So this is just old memories of old names and books and things that I read when I was into it. But the, the, so the most important thing of what I've said is what I said at first, that you have to become the expert on this and you have to find the people that have the answer um, to the question, which I don't have, but you have to find them and then pose your question to them. And, and in order for that to work, right, you'll, you, you'll build your vision uh, from, uh, you'll build your vision with as much specificity and then you'll ask specific questions to those experts. And this is my final comment that's hopefully helpful. Um, the better the question, the better the answer. Your question is excellent. I love the way that you phrased it. You've clearly been thinking about it. I love the way you defined the terms to make sure we were on the same page. Uh, I hope I hope we're on the same page and I didn't just bloviate for an extended period of time and not not provide anything helpful. But I love the way that you that you phrased it. So as you progress forward, what you'll want to do is you'll want to you'll want to ask increasingly clarifying specific specific questions to the experts. So you'll find an expert in the space and you'll say, what are the models that you have heard of that have worked in the farming business that allowed people to 
to farm but didn't require them to buy millions and millions of dollars worth of land. And a good question like that will then take an expert in the field and they say, well, so-and-so did it this way, so-and-so did it that way, so-and-so did it this other way. And then you'll ask yourself which of those would work in your Alberta context, et cetera. Um, so I don't have the answers, but that's how you're going to find them. And I've dropped as many names and as many resources of people that have inspired me that hopefully will give you a good start. Okay. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, yeah, I, I'm further along. Yeah, I think I could have asked the, the next question I had, um, but uh, maybe for, for another show. But um, yeah, I have done a fair bit of that. Yeah, the, the YouTubing, yeah, I'll have to rearrange how I consume YouTube because it would often just be their, you know, daily, daily vlog. And so that kind of became repetitive. But right. yeah, I think building a playlist of talks. Right. Um, with those those people you mentioned is would, would kind of help me learn um yeah i went to a conference last year and and was able to connect with a farmer and i worked with him for a couple months so right that was good um i i think yeah i can the, the business side of it uh i definitely have a lot to learn there and, and yeah just the more more serious research um i can do um i think i think Maybe next time I would ask a, a question that maybe do have a bit more expertise in is, uh, yeah, I guess my three my three other ways of framing the question was how should I invest in real real estate, how do I become a farmer, and then how do I pursue flag theory. So so perhaps uh, a, a, a more specific clarifying question for you right. that I, I I think you're a bit more of an expert in is how do I buy investment property in other countries. Um, yeah. but, uh, so that is an interesting question and I would love for you to call in next week and pitch one of those and we'll, we'll talk more about it. Um, what I would say is yeah. from the farming perspective, if there's any possible way that you can design a system that is not dependent upon your acquiring significant amounts of real estate, I think that is clearly the winning move. Uh, and I've heard this. I, I don't. I don't know how to do that. But I think that the 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 problem. Well, we'll talk about it in another show. But the, the, I guess my challenge is buying land is the most significant impediment to your overall operation. So can you find and develop ways to accomplish your goal without buying land? And, and if you can do that, you will get to your goals much more quickly uh, because you can de you can anything you can do to dematerialize your 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 plan is going to move you on the pathway faster. And this this follows the overall trend that we see in the world. Uh, the owners of Airbnb have gotten much wealthier than any other real estate investor because they didn't have to buy a bunch of land in order for them to make their money. Uh, you see this, this constant press towards digitalization and dematerialization. Now, there is a limit, right? There has to be something involved with ultimately, right? People who, who buy at Airbnb are ultimately staying in houses. They're sleeping in physical beds. 
there's going to be a physical component to the production of your food. But moving away from the material war world as much as possible removes one of the biggest constraints on, on human progress. And you see this in virtually every area of human endeavor. Anything you can do, and, and, and this is a constant throughout time. If you went back to when radio was invented, uh, broadcast radio, broadcast radio transformed the world because it eliminated the need for someone to be physically present to hear a talk, hear a speech, hear a debate, etc. And so that, that trend is, of course, continued with what you and I are doing right now using the internet, but it's the continuance of that overall trend. And it results in much faster progress. And so back to some of those guys, right? Salatin talks about this, that all of your infrastructure should be movable. That guys who, who, who buy a bunch of land and build, build big barns, they basically wind up, um, they wind up uh, you know, not expanding as fast. And so all of your in, if, if all of your infrastructure can be loaded on a bunch of semis and transported from one place to another, now you have a really, really powerful system. So, the, so at its core, if you can minimize the need to own land, then that will allow you to accomplish your goals much more quickly versus, versus having to buy all the land. Okay, yeah, that's that's interesting. I've kind of been looking at it from the opposite perspective. Like, I guess, like the the, the bare minimum of accomplishing my dream is is buying uh, a house, a rural rural house or in a, in a rural town. They're they're quite cheap um, in some places, and and just having a big a big garden with with chickens and. Uh, being able to eat the majority of my groceries from, from my yard. And then, um, that just, yeah, more of a hobby farm. And my income would mostly be from investments in the stock market. Um, and then, yeah, I've kind of wanted aimed with, with my, I, I didn't think I mentioned I had 10 head of cattle with, with someone following that Greg Judy model of not, trying to own less so that their income and their wealth are not tied up in their own farm because that makes them vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I feel, I feel like a, like a wealthy and that my wealth kind of on inspired by you. I want to ethically, I want to be a, how, how did you phrase it? A, a good steward, an ethical steward of, mm -hmm. of my wealth. So that's where the purchase of the land and the cattle came from. Um, and, and yeah, they're, they're kind of two different goals I have. One is to invest ethically and then one is to have the lifestyle I, I want. So, um, yeah, those, those are some, some interesting things to, to ponder about, uh, yeah, how, how can I achieve this without land? Cause I'd, I'd more been thinking about, uh, ways where I could like, they'd be smaller plots of land and, and in, in places where land is cheaper but uh i had been looking at buying land as a good way to invest my wealth right if you have the wealth then buying land can be productive uh but i don't think that it is i don't think it's usually should be the first spot 
I think that wealthy people right. should buy land um, when they have more money and they can't find other ways to invest it. But most of the time, buying a land is not going to be your best investment. I won't go on anymore with with example after example, but if you look around the world, uh, owning land is definitely a good idea. The question is, when do you want to own the land? And uh, if owning land is necessary, which in many models it may be, then you have to own the land. But if you can get by without owning the land, you can gain access to a very different uh, perspective on on the world. So um, I can't give you a specifics here today of what you should or shouldn't do, of course, uh, and, and, and it's going to depend on the specific circumstances, whether you own the land or whether you need to own the land or not, right? Again, Mark Shepard, my forest agriculture guy, he got, you got to own the land, right? He had to buy a farm, bought a hundred acre farm. And cause you're going to put the trees on there. This is a 50 year, 50 year plan. And so owning the land in that scenario was essential, but owning land is not essential to becoming a farmer or owning land is not essential to growing crops, growing your groceries in your backyard, um, there are ways that are that you can get to that faster. So um, think the, the, the best advice I can give you is the clearer you are on what your actual goal is, the easier it will be for you to achieve it. If you if your actual goal is for you to live in the country and have a productive garden and you know a dozen cows in your backyard and some chickens, et cetera, and do the homesteading thing, Probably the fastest way to achieve that is not in an agriculture business, but rather learning how to get employed online in some way, shape, or form, be it your own business or a job, which is easy to come by today, and you just simply work on your on your, uh, on your your job online. That gives you the money, and then you have your homestead that you tend uh, in your spare time, and that model is great. You could be there a year from now, no matter where you're from. Uh, and I think especially with inexpensive housing in rural areas, uh, Starlink is revolutionizing the world right now because it has taken the single biggest impediment to people moving to those rural plots, and it ha- which is, has been internet access, good, stable internet access that allows people to work online, and it's eliminated that. So now anybody can go to one of the, anybody who wants to, who wants to live in a rural area, can go to one of these rural areas, buy cheap land cheap house, uh, and get good, stable internet, which allows them to earn normal wages using some kind of online job, uh, online uh, employment. And that's the fastest path to that. So if that's your goal, then your path is very clear and direct. If your goal is to revolutionize food production on a global basis, well, now it's not the path to that is not ne- is nearly as clear and direct, but it is going to go in the direction of digitalization uh, of some kind because that's what ultimately is going to to revolutionize. Right? You look at you look at Jeff Lawton, for example. Um, Jeff Lawton is revolutionizing the world because he's taking his specific, unique expertise and he's not trying to do it all. He's using it with education. And that's the path, right? Preaching the gospel is the most effective way to transform the world because you don't have to do it all. You have to create a self-replicating system where, um, and so this is the, I use the term preaching the gospel to invoke a religious reference. If I preach the gospel to someone and that person believes and I say, now you need to go 
out and you need to tell someone else this until they believe, then pretty quickly we can fill the world with with the message, right? Look at in my context, of course, look at Christianity, right? It took us, um, it took 2,000 years to go from zero Christians on the world to today, one in seven. Um, and so that's an, it's an amazingly fast tr- transformation of the world. So the same thing happens with ideas. And so those ideas, if you want to, if you want to, if you can find the ideas and spread them, then that can often accomplish the change that you want. Go back in the United States, right? Go back to 1950, and the highways in the United States were covered with litter. Um, and yet somebody came up with an idea and said, "We're going to solve this litter problem. Let's get rid of the garbage and the trash." And today you drive across the highway, and there's no litter. It's, it's, it's great. And so you can solve problems right now within, within yours and my lifetime in the last 10 years, we're making massive progress towards solving the, um, towards solving the, the great Pacific garbage patch issues. Uh, it's, we're making progress. And so as we continue this, um, the key is if you can get clear on what the goal is that you want to solve, you'll see where the physical world is necessary for that goal. But any place that the physical world is necessary, it's going to slow you down. So if you can accomplish your goal with something that's digitized, dematerialized, um, you can often get there faster. Okay. All right. Yeah. Call in next yeah, week with one of those other questions and we'll, we'll chat about it then. Excellent. Wonderful. All right. Thanks for your time. <laughs> My pleasure. And with that, we round out uh, today's Q&A show. As always, we're here every week that I can arrange the appropriate technology to be in front of the microphone. And I would love to have you with me next week. Go to patreon.com slash radical personal finance. Sign up to support the show on Patreon. I simply use that to screen the callers so that I get a workable call number of callers for uh, a year, sorry, for an hour, two hours, something like that, rather than having uh, simply uh, too many. Uh, so I'd love to have you there. Go to patreon.com slash radical personal finance. I hope this show has been useful to you. Have a wonderful weekend, and I'll be back with you very soon. Oh, remember, uh, final days of the October sale on the Bitcoin Privacy Course. Go to bitcoinprivacycourse.com. Final days of the October sale, bitcoinprivacycourse.com. Bitcoin.